Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. We have a yellow logo with the words Flashpoint with Cherry Gregg. Please subscribe. And when you get through with that, once you listen, please, please, please leave us for a review and rate this podcast. We need your reviews to take us to the top. And if you have issues that make you hot under the collar, let us know. Our handle is Flashpoint Show on Twitter. Now let's get to it. Are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on a political race that's tied for the second most crowded in city history. People made a connection to what's happening on the federal level. Philadelphia City Council's Democratic at Large race. Identifying who is a primary election voter. You need to raise a lot of money. You need to get out there, touch the voter. The strategy for winning, who's got the juice, what are the issues? Our experts analyze this hot contest. A Philly mompreneur whose first investor was her teenage daughter. To this day, I, I never had a business loan. Her delectable product and how she took it from an idea to a brick and mortar. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is Philadelphia's at-large city council race. 54 people are in the running, 29 vying for five Democratic seats. So who's got the juice? What's the strategy for such a crowded race? Let's get right to it. With me in the studio to discuss this Flashpoint is Mustafa Rashid. He's a political commentator and CEO of Bellevue Strategies. We also have Jasmine Sessoms. She's founder of She Can Win. We have Al Schmidt. He's a city commissioner. And finally on the phone, we have the Honorable Bill Greenlee, who currently holds a city council at large seat, but he's not running this term. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having us. Good, Good to be with you. So we have about 54 people running for city council, 10 Republicans, 43 Democrats at my last count. 29 are running for five Democratic at-large seats. Al, we're going to jump to you. This is historic in a way. It is. The last time we saw numbers this high was 1999, which also had the same number of candidates. Before that was 1979. And that was in the middle of the Rizzo recall. The electorate was very energized because of a lot of things going on locally. This time, I don't know if it's that or if it's something much bigger and much broader and a nationalization of local elections, which seems to be taking place throughout the country. Yeah. And I want to throw that question to you, Mustafa. Mm -hmm. I mean, why? I mean, Rizzo, we don't have a Rizzo situation (laughs) going on. So why so many people throwing their hat in the ring? Sure. I think that people made a connection to what's happening on the federal level, which is curious because obviously your local participation and your local electives do far much more for you than the federal government does, and those roles are much more important. But I think people see what's happening in Washington, D.C., and they feel like they should be a part of the process in any way that they can, and they're trying it locally. And I think that's where we're getting a lot of participation from. People see what's happening, and they want to be a part of the solution and try to come up with some challenges for some of the things they're seeing coming out of Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of energized, not just with local races, but also with the congressional races. We saw that as mm-hmm. well. So I want to jump to you, Bill. Then I want to go to Jasmine. 
Um, you are a three-term at-large councilman. Uh, decided not to run. I mean, why'd you decide not to jump in with the other 29 people? <laughs> well, you know, I besides my servicing as a member, I was a staff member for 26 years. So it'll be 40 years by the end of uh, Nine, uh, 2019. I just thought that was enough time, <laughs> and um, I thought it was time to take a little break. Uh, I really enjoyed the service, but I just thought it was it was time for me. You know, I, I think you have to be all in when you run for an office, especially a citywide office like council at large. And I just wasn't sure I would be all in, so I thought it was time to step aside. If I could just add one thing, though, I think in 1979, I think I'm the old guy, I think, online here. One of the differences was, I think at that time, you still only needed 100 signatures to get on the ballot. <laughs> you now need 1,000. And I think it was because of the large list in 1979 that they increased it to 1,000, if my memory serves me right. They said it's too much, too much. Jasmine, I want to talk to you because there are 27 first-time candidates, 19 First-timers running for the Democratic at-large seats. You train folks to run. How do you compete as a first-timer with so many doggone people? I train women to run. <laughs> that <laughs> distinction. There you go. you got to make that, that clear. I train women to run. I think for a first-time candidate, it's going to be difficult, especially in such a crowded field. Traditionally, you need to raise a lot of money. You need to get out there, touch the voter, have the party's backing. But I think... It's interesting. I just watched this documentary last night on Netflix. It's called Knock Down the House, mm-hmm. I think. And it's all about um, AOC running and how she was a waitress and came into Congress mm-hmm. and the non-traditional candidate. I think that, like Mustafa said, that really inspired people. You can run and win without being a traditional candidate, even in Philadelphia. So I think that inspires people and people are ready to go. Yeah, they're ready to go. They don't care that they, they have care. to compete against all these folks. Al, ballot position. How much does that matter when there are 29 people? It has two influences, I think, on the outcome. One, a better ballot position, which means being toward the front of the ballot. One of the first people on the ballot for that race is definitely an advantage. But people also think it's a big advantage. And then endorsements chase that ballot position and money chases that ballot position, which then – makes it even more consequential than it really was even to begin with. So if you yes. get a good ballot position, yeah. you're more likely to raise money. You're more likely to get endorsements. And is right. that what you're saying? So not only is the ba- not only is it better to just have a better ballot position, but all sorts of things chase it, like the endorsements chase it. Like people want to back somebody who's going to win. And when somebody is toward the front of the pack, there's more of a belief that they're going to be successful. And there's more contributors who might decide to contribute to those candidates. So it really builds on itself – and taken on a kind of mythical <laughs> influence over this thing. But there's plenty of elections, plenty of elections where the winners are not number one or number two or number three. It's number 26. It's number 16. For for races like city council at large, I think the profile is a little bit higher mm. than it is for – with no disrespect – towards some of the judicial races where you might have 40 people on the ballot running for an office that – no one really knows that much about common pleas court, or, or com, uh, commonwealth court, or, or common uh, municipal court, or something like that. So it's a really crowded field, crowded with names you don't know. And I think with the city council race, it has less of an influence because these are people raising some serious money. They're campaigning day and night. Yeah, they have positions on issues, strong positions on issues, which judicial candidates can't have. I think it has a big impact. It just is less than I think everyone thinks it has. And it's like all in this this coffee can. I just, sure. yeah. Can I just <laughs> piggyback really quickly? 
I find it so interesting that like the first ten, they don't even have the most money other than uh, Gim. Yeah, yeah, she has yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, and uh, Aaron has done done well with her fundraising as well. But the rest of them, they don't even have like a whole bunch of money. They have like ten thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. I looked at campaign finance reports all day long. I find that really really interesting that in like those top ten. They haven't even raised right. the most money. In addition to the ballot position, is actually where you line up in the voting booth. It's where the where the candidates are positioned in the booth. It depends on how many overall. So in this case, there's 30, 29 candidates. And I believe the, the last look that it was four rows of six, mm-hmm. six columns. So do people go across? It do they go, go down? It's both. And it's both. And it depends if your name's at the top. Like, you, like say you draw the misfortune of having your name in the far right corner. Like naturally where your eye, and this is really granular, but this is important. Where your eye follows in the voting booth, you start you as you read from left to right. Yeah. If you're, maybe you've got a single digit ballot position, but your number is in a lower right column, like that matters. People may not, may not, may not go across and look for you. So it, it, the ballot position is important, but after we decide, it's decided who actually makes the ballot, it's almost just as important where your positioning is on the actual ballot when you go into the voting booth. Yeah. So that yeah. matters. Bill, I mean, you ran three times and it's a citywide race. It's like a marathon. Right. Explain what it's like to dart all over the city trying to get your name out there. It's difficult, especially, um, you know, when you first run because your name recognition isn't as high. Just quickly on the ballot, ballot. position. I pulled number one one time, and it's amazing how many more friends I had. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I know you were like, yes! <laughs> yes, yes. You realize what a large city it is. You sometimes get invited to a meeting in Somerton and Eastwick at the same time, mm-hmm. and unless you have a helicopter, <laughs> that's <laughs> kind of tough to do. So, you know, you try to do the best you can at getting out. Traditionally, Thursday nights were the the biggest challenge. Lots of people have, like to have meetings on Thursday nights. So it's a challenge as you, you get around, you know, as you're more involved, you try to get quant- quality over quantity, I guess is the best way to say it. You know, try to get to the places where the most people are. When you were an incumbent running versus first timer, party endorsements, all those different things help out a lot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they, they all count. You know, the endorsement isn't the be all and end all. I think the last time, I believe three endorsed candidates lost. Yes. So, I mean, it's not to be on end all, but it certainly helps. Your name's on a lot of paper out there on election day. <laughs> How do you educate people? Because, Al, you got folks out here running from the Northeast to South Philly, West Philly. They're all around every single day. But at the same time, you know, as voters, you have no clue who half these people are. And you got to choose five people. And most of the campaigns especially really serious ones, have advisors, they have campaign advisors, they have people like that who can help guide them through this process. Because it is, as the councilman said, a very big city with more than a million registered voters. The most important thing is identifying who are the likely voters. Who are the people who are going to show up in this election? Not who shows up in a presidential general election, not who shows up in an election for governor or senate or something like that, but who is a primary election voter in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. because that's your universe. It's not a million people. It's probably more like 200,000 people or 300,000 people that would vote on the high end at the most. So it's all about targeting, I think, in a race race like this. Mm -hmm. And campaign advisors help guide them. And, And it's a big city and you're rushing from Parkwood and then you're in South Philly and then you're in Roxborough all in one evening. Yeah. And your shoes can only take you so far. So that's why money really helps that process to campaign citywide. And you're you're doing that without the benefit of a mayoral race where you're on television. 
mm. where you get forums that people generally want to attend or you get debates. Running for at-large is one of the most difficult jobs. You're running as mini-mayor of the city without the benefit of media coverage. And like you said, you've got to be in different parts of the city and different parts of, at, at the same time. But the natural attention to follow this race, is that it's not there. Everyone wants to be mayor. Everyone wants to know who's going to run for mayor. So there's a lot of interest that goes with that. But for city council at large, it's, it's incredibly challenging to have to do the same job in terms of getting votes, but without the media platform that goes with it. Yeah, and I, and I have to say, as a member of the media, it's impossible to do it with 30 mm-hmm. People right. running or 55 sure. across because if you do one, the other people demand equal right. time and there's absolutely <laughs> no way you can give all these people Correct. that kind of time. So Bill and Jasmine, money. There's only like a, a three people who had raised more than 200K. Most people had raised very little. Some people even owe money. I was like, like, y'all owe it. How can you get your name out there, get the type of name recognition that defies the ballot position if folks just don't know you and it's all these people you're trying to figure it out? There's no easy formula. You have to raise money. So if you look at Derek, who's number 24, who is an incumbent, 24 is not an ideal position. I think all of us will agree Mm -hmm. that 24 isn't ideal for an incumbent at-large city councilman. But... He has raised a good amount of money where he can get on a lot of ballots. Mm -hmm. He is an endorsed candidate and he can pay for a paid canvassing operation. When you're that low on the ballot, you have to do it. So there really is no, well, I'll try to get out and door knock door to door when you have a not so great ballot position. The key really is raising a lot of money, trying to go on TV, going on radio, going up on billboards. So your name is everywhere. Because voters, they go with what they see. They're not going to read your whole bio. They just know, I've seen this name over and over. Where's his name on the ballot? Right. That is how they vote. So really getting that high name ID takes money. Yeah. And Bill, talk about that. I mean, because you obviously were successful multiple times. How was it getting your name out there? I mean, and your name is still very known right now. Obviously, the more you're there, I guess, the more your name gets out. And I have gotten some publicity on some of the bills I did, both positive and negative. <laughs> <on my end>. Yeah. <laughs> but fundraising, and, and to be honest with you, go back to your first question about why I decided not to run. One of them was I just wasn't into raising money again. It was the least favorite thing I did, either as a candidate or as a council member. But it is something you have to do because you have to have uh, do what you can to get your name out there. And, and sometimes it literally comes down to election day to have enough people out at each polling place you have to have money to do that you have to have uh, people out there because a lot of people on a council at large race you can grab people on election day if you will if you if you have aggressive people out there you know pushing your name yeah does it take a lot of people i mean i'm trying to think city at large races i mean you got to have people all over the city it's not like a district sure what you would try to do is look at the and as as al pointed out earlier is is try to make some guesstimates on what's going to happen in this particular race not prior races because it doesn't transfer race to race so you'll look at what you think will happen in this race and try to say well these where i think we can get our votes from and then you'll have a field operation that will support that mission in those districts and say that this is where we think we're going to get our votes from, where this is where we want to have the largest presence. But you need resources. And by resources, I need you have to raise money. Cash, it's just I, I, money. I mean, you can't emphasize enough just how important fundraising is for any of these operations, because I'm certain every one of these 29 candidates have an, has an yeah. amazing story. But you can't tell that story without resources. Yeah. And people will say they never heard of you. And I'm going to switch gears a, a bit. Can we talk about the ages of the candidates? I mean, 10 millennials, uh, 28 Xers, <laughs> go Xers, 15 boomers. <laughs> And only two people over 70 
Al, Bill, I mean, how does this stack up? Most is this the most young folks you've ever seen? Yeah, I think it's it's the most. A lot of it is influenced by the you know what's going on nationwide, the federal elections. You know, I think there are uh, a lot more interest by younger people, more kind of okay. I'm I'm not going to let somebody else make my statement. I'm going to make it myself, kind of thing. And yeah, that's good. That's good. I think having you know diverse in <laughs> lots of ways, age, gender demographics of all everybody's in here and millennial turnout and this this might accrue to the benefit of millennial candidates i don't know because people don't necessarily always vote fitting with their demographic cohort or something like that but millennial turnout for the last four elections has been way up last year it was up a hundred percent millennials make up the largest number of registered voters but usually have the lowest turnout their turnout is normally pathetic. 9%, 10%. Four years ago for the mayor election, it was 12%. 12% turnout among people 18 to 34. One thing that's happened a little bit different in the last four elections, in 2018, primary and general, in 2017, which was a DA controller race, normally the one that has the yeah. absolute least <laughs> amount of interest. Again, no disrespect, <laughs> has the least amount of interest. There's less money on TV. There's yeah. less campaigning. There's less coverage. There's less everything. Millennial turnout was through the roof, especially geographically from Fishtown, Northern Liberties, all the way down to South Philly, mm-hmm. through Center City, over to University City. Off the charts, over 100% yes. increase in millennial turnout. So I think that's going to be a, a potential factor here because, as Mustafa said, it's impossible to predict. You have no idea who's going to show up or not show up. Uh, and as Jasmine said, it's all about targeting you know, and targeting those people and how do you how do you reach them? But that's definitely something that's changed recently. Yeah. And I and I have to remember, I go back to the mayor's race 2015, mm-hmm. where the youngest person on the ballot was 40. Was 40. Yeah. And now that's not the case. What does it say, Mustafa? We talked about 2017. Remember, that was six months after the presidential election. Mm. So that that was the environment of 2017. And, and you, I would tell you that I, I don't know if that 2017 DA's controllers race environment will ever be repeated again but it it made a lot of young people look up and pay attention yeah and you're right if if 10 to 12 percent is is where people usually vote in 18 to 34 there's a lot of room for growth and i'm hopeful that this time that young people 18 to 34 do show up and and in significant numbers because they could influence an election absolutely they can and can i just say to millennials as an exennial you know (laughs) millennials are like not just 20 something anymore like there's a lot of millennials that's hitting up 30 over 35 now like (laughs) like, like, folks got kids they got houses they care like different and they're maturing there you go yeah and so jasmine i mean folks are stepping forward and millennial voters turning out more i mean is this part of the the resurgence of political interest with young folks as well i think so i'm considered a millennial but like you said i got Two babies, a whole house. <laughs> I'm on the other side of 35. <laughs> and you do care. You want a better place for your kids to live, work, and play. You want a better commonwealth. So you are being a more educated and more focused voter. You're not going to just sit home during the election right. yeah. at this point. It matters. And it has been drilled into us. Elections mattered. Just by that last presidential, everything has changed. It's a game changer. There is no formula. Are there local concerns that you think are driving this resurgence 
of entrance from 1979 going that back? I mean, are there local issues that you think people care about that are forcing, that are making people step forward? I think the hot topic button, just in my realm, and, I, and you know what I'm going to say, Mustafa, it's that soda tax. I got to tell you, that soda tax yeah. is like it's a, It's a wedge issue. It, it, the, the funny thing about it, there was an article the other day where it just talked whole, entirely about the soda tax. And some of the candidates were expressing disappointment that that's all we're talking about. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, you guys stepped up. Like, you knew that this was going to be what a this is an actual wedge topic, right? It, the issue itself is less important about it, yeah. is where you stand on it. Yeah. And you don't get to duck this one. And if you step forward and say that you want the tax to be gone, you also have to step forward and say, what your plan is to replace the revenue because the, the programs right. are there. The I saw pro- some tweets you, about you. What's you, the plan? What's the plan? What's the plan? Like you can't yeah. just say, oh, we should, oh, I, I'm going to vote against it or I, I think we should get rid of it, but I have no plan to re- replace the revenue. In a, in a broader sense, I think people are concerned. They want to make sure that the city is going in the right direction. Now, how you describe that is, mm-hmm. is very abstract and that's broad, but pinpoint issues, it's a soda tax. And if you could say you're for it or against it, you're going to get some activity coming your way that may be helpful to you. So yeah. it's, that's why people are jumping out. From. Bill, any comment on this? I mean, yeah, you're in I, city I council. I what yeah. was interesting the other day, there was that poll in the, in the <laughs> paper. And, Push you know, poll. the majority of people were against the soda tax, but it seemed like the majority of people were in support of the programs that the soda tax paid for. Right. A lot of people want a yes or no answer <laughs> on a lot of issues. Um, and in fact, they, I think there was a forum a month or two ago where you just had to hold up your sign, yes or no. And, <laughs> and that was basically me, That's awful. To me, that's unfair right. because there's nuances to most issues. And yeah. to just say yes or no is just not the proper way to address things, I think. Quick, any other issues you think are decisive in that way or that is the one? I think poverty, I, obviously, Philadelphia being the, the largest poorest city in America. Yeah. And again, that's a very intractable problem that has a lot of different solutions and way to address it. And some candidates have stepped forward to say, you know, economic development, workforce opportunities, how they're going to fix it. But there's no silver bullet for it. Like there, there has to be a from the ground. And, and that's not commitment. as easy for a it's city council sexy. member. Oh, it's God, not no. yes, no, yes, nope. no. So that's no. that that takes a lot more. And so there are a lot of names on this list. Y'all see these names yes. that in front of you. Who do you think on this list? You know, besides the top five people, because the ballot position let, has a solid chance because Jasmine, of whatever. I'll let Jasmine do that one because let's start talking about money. Is it, is <laughs> it money? Let's, is the money the Let's do the, it from the money top? out, and then I think that gives you a clearer picture and of I'm where everyone saying, stands. I'm not asking you to predict, but I'm just saying it has a good chance based on the the circumstances here. So if I had to do it by, by money that they have right now, uh, Helen Gim. She has, and she also has name recognition too, and a good ballot position. Yeah, Yeah. Alan Dom has more money than anybody I can even imagine. If I see another Alan Dom commercial. <laughs> and he's on television. Yeah, he's been on television. He so went up very through. early on yeah. TV and radio. And Bernard Hopkins is <laughs> stopping. Yeah, stopping for him, so go he, ahead. He ain't playing no games. Uh, Aaron Santamore has a good amount of money for a first-time mm-hmm. candidate. First time. She has $209,000. Right. Whoa. I'll, I'll put there's a caveat. There's a drop-off because broadcast television is incredibly expensive. So yeah. you need about two or 300 grand a week to be on broadcast television, and then you have to be willing to sustain it once you go up. So there is a drop-off point. So $200,000 is a great amount of money. It's not enough to go on broadcast TV, but you can do a lot with it. Yeah, so that, I, I hear it say, on the radio, KYW, yeah. all day yeah. long. Yeah. Thank uh, y'all. Let's see. who else? Uh, Derek Derek has a good amount of money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he, he is high six figures right. as well. Justin DiBardino's. Yep. 
for a first-time candidate. Um, his impressive. last filing yeah. was one hundred and ninety-five thousand dollars. That's impressive. All right, that's a yep. lot of money. Mm-hmm. I would add Isaiah Thomas in there because he is backed by so many mm-hmm. unions. Yep. yep. Um, so and good. he yeah. has and like he ground game. That's ground yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah. So if I had to do it just by money, that's not necessarily a Jasmine Sessions personal endorsement. No, no, we're not talking about endorsement. We're not but endorsing. Just I'm just saying, good chance. Just yeah. by money, that is that. That's my that's my pick. Kathy yeah. Gilmore, she has a lot of union support right. as well and institutional support. Yep. She's really done a good job of balancing. That, that That's that's where I see right here on the list. On the list, based on money alone. So if we jump into the district races, and I didn't ask you all about this, any of them that you're watching? Well, I think the 7th Councilman District right. always seems to be a, mm-hmm. be a race. Uh, Councilman Sanchez, she always beats back the challenger, and she's got one this time that probably has a little bit higher name recognition because and. State Representative Cruz has been yep, a state rep for a mm-hmm. long time up there. I mean, I don't live up there, and now that I'm not a candidate, I'm not out on the, <laughs> out in the street as much. Mm-hmm. But I I think that's going to be a challenge. Uh, some people think that uh, Councilwoman Blackwell's opponent, uh, Jamie Cossier, I think I'm pronouncing that right, has a campaign going out there. I mean, not out there, but I think Councilwoman Blackwell would be difficult to beat. Councilman Johnson has an opponent, but it mm-hmm. seems like he's in pretty good shape in his district. I think that's about it. You know, Councilman Jones has an opponent, but I don't think it's a strong opponent from what I, from what I understand. Yeah. You know. Anybody you think that's on here? I mean, there's a couple people who owe money. <laughs> <laughs> so I gotta, I'm not yeah. going to name no names, but sure. I don't know. Like, but, you know, you can't come into the race owing. No, you do want to be spent down on election day. Yeah. Because there's no, no reason <laughs> having ammunition yet. left uh, after the yet. fight's over. But to, to be owing at this point is a... It's not an ideal position to be in. And Al, do you think the lists are going to shorten anymore? Because we, we've gone down one. Yeah, the people are running out of time to drop off the mm-hmm. ballot. At this point, it requires a court order to get the city commissioner's so office to So you out there no matter them. what. Yes. They're, they're, at some point, they're going to be out there no matter what. And their name is going to be on the ballot even if they withdraw from it. And with any race, whether it's city council at large or some others, you have people who are on the ballot who are not raising money. They're not going to events debates or forums yeah. that don't have any endorsements. They're not – so I always find it very curious because I'm not exactly sure right. what they're doing when they do that because they're they're really setting up to lose and lose probably significantly. But one thing that I know from being a candidate before is on the night before any election, everybody who's on the ballot thinks that there's a good chance that they might win. <laughs> <laughs> and no matter how much money you have and no matter how many endorsements you have and you, how many yeah. ballots you're on – Every strong candidate thinks they could lose the yeah. night before an election. Yeah. Right. And if you don't, you're making a mistake because you're taking it for granted. Yeah. And that's right. how strong candidates lose. And on that note, because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. This is a crowded field. What is your advice to voters trying to sift through to determine who is who? And please provide any resources because it's going to be, you know, on election. Sure. Now, you know, people aren't even going to check it out to the day right. before. I would tell people to make a list, a very short list of what issues are important to you. Are it schools? Is it taxes? Is it crime? Uh, is it poverty? And then look at the candidates who address, who have a plan to address those issues. Go vote like a black woman. Black women are the highest demographics out here voting. Vote who you want to vote for, but go vote like a black woman. Just go vote. Al? You can't vote if you're not registered and you don't know where your polling place is. So PhiladelphiaVotes.com, which is the city commissioner's website, has resources so you can look up to make sure you're registered to vote. It'll tell you where your polling place is, what hours the polls are open. You know, all, all of those resources are located in Is it too in late to spot. register? 
it is too late to register yeah. to vote at this point. But if you've moved in the last year, let's say, and you didn't change your registration, yeah. you can still vote, but you have to vote where you used to be registered. Bill, with all the experience, decided to step aside your advice to the voters trying to sift through this crowded well, race. Plan to vote. We want everybody to vote. And as your time allows, try to do as much research into the candidates as, as you can. I know it's a crowded field, and but do your best homework before you vote. But please, everybody vote. Yeah. I want to say thank you to Mustafa Rashid. Thank you to Jasmine Sessoms, to Al Schmidt, and to the Honorable Bill Greenlee for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Great. Thank you thank for having you. us. Thank you. Next up, this mompreneur turned her side hustle into a brick and mortar in a year. Changed my whole mindset. Mm. Her surprising first investor and how it's adding to their bottom line. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets area residents hot under the collar is a bad idea. And that's not something that Sharice McGill has to worry about, though. The mother, business owner, and innovator has been making headlines for selling French toast. Yes, y'all, French toast. McGill is the founder of Local Artisan Foods. Her French toast bites have become an overnight sensation, and they are delicious. Sharice Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me, Sherry. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, so tell us about your product, French Toast Bites. Explain it. It's fun. It's, like, it's a festival food. I love, love French toast, and I think you can eat French toast any time of the day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack. Um, I go out a lot to festivals and farmer's markets, and you want that item just to walk around and eat comfortably. So the bites make it comfortable. They were sticks at first. And I had all my friends come over in my backyard and walk around. They're like, they're too big. So we cut them down. So before they became what you saw, they were three other things first. Yeah. So like, and so they're bite size. Yes. Are they like thin strips? No, I don't know. They're nice. Uh, about a half an inch square around. Uh, Texas toast. So it's thick cut bread. Crispy on the outside. Soft in the middle. Cinnamon, sugar, and nutmeg. They're seasoned with the only French toast seasoning you'll ever need, which is in stores now. Yes. <laughs> and so, yeah. and then you just you just smother them with stuff. Yeah, we deep fry them lightly. It's like a, it's a quick deep fry just to get them a little crunchy on the outside. And we load them up with the seasoning, and people can put what they want on it. We have uh, whipped cream, strawberries. Uh, what else do we have? All the syrups, maple syrup, caramel syrup, chocolate syrup. You can hook it up. And so you just literally started decided that one day you wanted to do this. Uh, I didn't wake up and say, I'm going to sell French toast. Uh, about seven years ago, I started managing the Lansdale Farmer's Market. Mm-hmm. And the way I started managing it, it wasn't like under the best conditions for me professionally. I had just lost one of my largest clients for my conference planning company. And then I saw this opportunity to manage the Lansdale Farmer's Market. Before managing it, I think I've gone to a farmer's market once on accident. So I just really treated it like a gig. I didn't really... Uh, put a much into it until I was talking to one of the vendors probably about two weeks in. And he said, um, I asked him, you know, how's your day going? So I don't know farmer's market talk. So that really means how are your sales going? So he said, uh, it's okay. We made about $300 so far. 
And I looked at my watch. I was like, we've only been here for two hours. Like, you made 150 bucks an hour? And then it just changed my whole mindset mm. on farmer's markets and understanding the economy of open-air markets. So just having the privilege of being around a lot of high-profile independent food producers and just learning as much as I can and them being, like, strong resources for me, it just, it just set off everything. And so you worked with farmer's markets. Mm-hmm. You don't see—and then you decided— you know, French toast. What's right. your history with French toast? Well, let's back up. My daughter, who essentially grew up in farmer's markets because she's uh, 13 now, but she started a business last year at the Lansdale Farmer's Market with her lemonade, local lemonade. I was like, why do you want to sell lemonade? She said, because there's nothing to drink here except water and coffee. So kids really don't have anything else to drink. I was like, well, you know, lemonade isn't really local because lemons aren't grown in Pennsylvania. So what are you going to do to make it local? She said, we can just buy fruit from farmers. So we can have like strawberry lemonade or mint lemonade. I was like, that's a great idea. Ask them. Like I made her own it because I didn't want to have a business and run the market at the same time. And so she took off with it and she did. She was very successful. And I got a little jealous. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted a business too. <laughs> so, so your daughter's lemonade stand blows up at the farmer's market. Yeah, yeah. She and you're up. looking at her like, what in the world? Yeah, she has more shoes than me. Yeah, she, <laughs> she, she blew up uh, last summer. <laughs> so I was like, wait a minute. But um, we saved the money. Uh, and it actually rolled over into build the French toast uh, business, and I gave her all her money back. <laughs> so your daughter was your first investor. Yes. And how much did she invest? Uh, Six thousand dollars. So your daughter worked, <laughs> sold lemonade, yes. raised six grand, yes, invested in your business, and you paid her back. And now, boom, you're blowing up. Yes, but now her lemonade is coming along with the with everything. So when we go to our festivals, we have 110 events. Uh, this year, between now and December 31st, we have a permanent location opening up next week. Her lemonade will be sold everywhere. So all those are her profits still. So mommy, daughter. <laughs> yes, because I don't know how else I'm going to pay for college. So we'll start at 13 and keep going. <laughs> wow. And so you um, so you typically you, you started in open air markets. Yes. And now you're going to a brick and mortar. Yes, right down in Northern Liberties. It's called the Piazza Pod Park. It's a new development by the Post Brothers. Uh, there's about 13 operators in there. A mix of food, fitness. Uh, there's a nursing station for mothers. It, it's it's very cool uh, down there. So yeah, I welcome you to come. And we're pumped just to be a part of it. You know, they reached out to us and we're like, you want French toast there? Okay. You know, we, we were honored because we just came off Christmas Village and we took a break from January to March just to kind of figure out our next moves uh, after Christmas Village because Christmas Village was ex- overwhelmingly successful. Like, you know, you say you tell, uh, you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. He definitely laughed at what I had planned. I was able to, you know, I quit my job and sustain my life. It was it was fantastic. I think I, I made about three-fourths of my annual salary in that month. You made three-fourths of your former annual salary yes. in one month. Yeah, selling I, French toast. Selling French toast. Bites. Yes. And as I always say it. How I'll, much French toast was you selling, girl? Like, we, we probably sold it at Christmas Village anywhere between 6,000 and 7,000 orders. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it is good, y'all. It is really good. <laughs> and I'll put that out there. Thank They're you really very, good. Thank you very much. That's your cheat day meal. Yeah. <laughs> That's and your so, cheat day snack. You know, and so what's your vision? Uh, I always say in interviews that I want to be the Auntie Anne's of French toast, and people laugh. Uh, at that, but essentially, you know, she has a business model where she's in high traffic areas, and that's kind of the business model that we're following. Just being at the events, being at the festivals, being in these new dining destination areas in Philadelphia. That's, you know, that's kind of where we want to be. And actually, this year we have events in California, Maryland, so we're just, we're spreading out across the country. 
Wow. So you got to get your special bread or, or is it special bread or uh, good old Texas toast? Texas toast. It's got a Texas toast and we so they cut it perfectly. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> we've, we've graduated and now they deliver it to us now. <laughs> oh, you get the truck. You yes. get the Texas toast truck. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they, so they told us that during Christmas Village, but I didn't commit then because we had a lot going on. And then now, since things cranked up a little bit, they said, we'll deliver it. Thank you. <laughs> That's wow. And so let's back up a little bit for folks sure. who may have dreams of getting into uh, selling food and, and having their own business where they sure. do something like this. What is your training? What's your background? Uh, I received my undergraduate degree from Temple University School of Tourism and Hospitality. And you're from yeah, I'm from Pittsburgh, born and raised. Then I came to Philadelphia in 1999 to attend Temple University. I graduated in 2003 and never really looked back. I love Pittsburgh. Shout out to Pittsburgh. But I never really looked back because uh, Philadelphia was so rich in culture, so much more to do. And I just established a base, a professional base and a personal base because at Temple, you had to have like 600 hours of internship. So I was working for the Phillies. I worked for uh, the Sixers for a couple seasons. So I was just kind of in the thread of professional Philly. So I I just stuck around. Um, to do that, and then uh, I was always in event planning, though. That was that, That's my base and where the training comes from. My first job out of college was with the Atlantic 10 Basketball Conference, and I was planning the men's basketball tournament, you know, NCAA. I was like 21 <laughs> doing this. It was huge. It's one of the best jobs ever to this date uh, that I've had, and I, just learning a lot from traveling and planning golf tournaments all over the country was huge for someone to experience from Pittsburgh, right out of college. And I'm still trying to put together how you got good at making French toast. I mean, uh, Sherry, you know, I know my way around the kitchen a little bit, uh, Sherry. Anytime my friends would come over, they would say, Sherry, make that French toast. I'm like, what? French, like, French toast? But they kept calling it that French toast. I'm like, it's a that French toast? Okay. So that's when it clicked. Like, that could be my product. Like, I knew Manny had the lemonade, and I was jealous. But I was like, I don't have a product. And then people kept saying, make the French toast. But it wasn't like. It was still breakfast kind of French toast. It wasn't festival French toast, but now it's like festival. So and then fun. you had to transition, mm-hmm. transition it into something that people can hold and eat as they walk. That is correct. Yeah. Do they get some wipes, ham hand wipes? Because I can see people just like uh, have, getting into get it. Uh, we have a lot of napkins. Yeah, because I can see people getting into <laughs> we, we, it. With we, that. we have a lot of you napkins. You can put chocolate on it. You could put syrup on it. Yep. You could have. I think people. I saw people putting some whipped cream or something. Oh yeah, we on do. There. Yeah, we offer whipped cream. You know, and as the summer comes, we'll have local. Uh, produce on top like when it's peach season in July we'll put the fresh peaches oh, on there peaches. Yeah, it's all fresh stuff mm-hmm. yeah it's all fresh stuff. stuff and I, I'm also in, I'm in school now also like most people quit their job I mean excuse me most people go to school to get a better job or to get a promotion and I went back to school and quit my job because I wasn't going to pay $50,000 for an education to get another company rich I said I'm going to quit and make myself rich and St. Joe's has been overwhelmingly supportive I'm about halfway through my MBA program in food marketing there. Mm-hmm. And it just really worked out. And so what's your advice to other women, other moms? Because you're a mother and daughter team, yes, basically. Yes, uh, I would say start the business while you have a job. Uh, the, this was like a two-year plan. A lot of people think I woke up one day, including my dad. They think I woke up one day and said, I'm going to quit my day job and make French toast. It was about a two-year plan. Like the first year, while I still had a salary, I... Shaved my life down, became very lean, got rid of my car note, got rid of cable, got rid of internet. I steal my neighbors, shout out to them. You know, I do some <laughs> things like that uh, just to get real lean. Um, then the second year is when I started buying equipment because it's hard to buy equipment because I, I didn't, I don't, to this day, I, I never had a business loan, you know, to date. Everything's been is from the muscle. So that second year, uh, that's when you start buying your equipment. I had to buy deep fryers, I had to buy tents, I had to buy tables, I had to get licensed, you know, I had to get all all prepared. So I used that second year to buy everything I needed while I was still getting paid every two weeks. Now, 
uh, it just worked out. Yeah. And, and as we close up our interview, I mean, what was it like saying I quit? Uh, Valley Forge Military Academy is a job I resigned from. They were overwhelmingly supportive. A lot of friends and even family told me, don't tell them that you're quitting to start your own business. Because jobs get weird about stuff like that, and you may have to go back. I was like, no, nah, I'm not even going to start my new business off like that. I'm going to tell them straight up. And here's what happened. They put it in their alumni newsletter. I had about five Valley Forge alum come, and the band director bought the whole band regiment, and they prepaid for uh, 20 orders. So they were overwhelmingly supportive. So it felt good. Uh, that they were supportive, and I was I wasn't nervous. It's some of your all first faith. clients, yeah, my first clients, my former my former uh, employees, our coworkers, and the students from Valley Forge. Well, there's a big vision I know mm-hmm. for that you have uh, being the Auntie Anne's or being the Sharice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The Sharice McGill. No, thank you. Thank whatever. You. you don't have to cop. You know, you, you no, can no, create your own business model. Yeah. Standpoint. Because my dad asked me, you know, he was like, "You sure you want to quit your job for French toast?" I was like, "Yeah." And he was like, "Just French toast," and uh, and I said. Do you think Auntie Anne's dad asked her just pretzels? Bam! So we never had the conversation again. (laughs) (laughs) We never had the conversation again. And with that, tell us about your website and where the address of your new location. The website is www.local with a K. So that's L O K A L, artisanfoods.com. Same for the Instagram, local artisan foods. And our location is in the Piazza Pod Park. At 1075 Germantown Avenue, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19123. And we'll be at over 110 events in the city uh, this year. Wind Days of events, yes. Busy, so you'll busy, see busy. us. You'll see us at uh, food trust night markets. You'll see us everywhere. And find that you can just smell just the cinnamony smell from the French <laughs> toast, the only French toast seasoning you'll ever need. Yes, that's available online on the website. It's available uh, in Delaware Shop. Rights are rolling out there as we speak. Uh, we have uh, we're in Swarthmore Co-op, and we're also in V Marks the Shop. It's a vegan convenience store in South Philly. Well, I just want to say congratulations. Thank you so much, Miguel. Out here hustling, mother daughter team. Your daughter, you learn from each other. (laughs) Thank you so much to Sharice McGill, founder of uh, Local Artisan Foods. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Sherry. I appreciate it. Next up, after the recent synagogue shooting in California, a local effort to quell hate. We've had over ten thousand people walk. The walk's history and tips on how we all can broaden inclusion. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Please sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Just search Flashpoint KYW. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community. And over the past few months, the world has witnessed unimaginable acts from Sri Lanka to Pittsburgh and Poway, California. In a couple of weeks, more than 30 local nonprofits will band together to fight against injustice. Now, here to tell us more about the walk against hate is the Anti-Defamation League's regional board chairman, Alan Gubernick, and Blaine Stoddard. He's co-founder of the Black Jewish Alliance of the ADL. Gentlemen, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having us. So, Alan, the ADL just issued numbers showing a doubling of physical anti-Semitic assaults in America in 2018. This walk is so needed right now, and Philly was the first place to do it. Yes, we were the first people in the ADL to... uh, inspire and think of the walk. It's now our ninth walk. We've had over 10,000 people uh, walk and come together and celebrate diversity and inclusion. And uh, it makes Philadelphia proud when, we, when we're when we able to do that. Wonderful. And so 
part of this walk is to bring together a coalition of folks to fight against hate. And and Blaine, you co-founded uh, a section of the ADL that does just that. Yes, I'm the co-founder of the Black Jewish Alliance. And I think most of the hatred in America from the white supremacist groups is coming against Jews and blacks. And yet, over the past 50, 55 or some, some years, the black and the Jewish community have not been necessarily working together. And I think uh, that's a fallacy. I believe that blacks and Jews must work together hand in hand. Yeah. yeah. And so when we think about this, this rise, I mean, we've seen it. I mean, obviously, we need these coalitions, but we've seen it happen in Christian faiths, synagogues. We've seen mosques. And it takes many forms, but it doesn't always come out as a physical act in this way, Alan. No, many times you'll see things that are, it seem very innocent, but they're troubling. And, you know, those accelerate and rise to the level of violence at certain times because many people will look at those things and say, oh, that's not a big deal. That's not that important. That's not really a bad thing. And give me um, an example, because a lot of it's not criminal at first, and then it ramps up. Well, it's really just rhetoric. It, it's joking. It could be it could be considered a, a, a racist joke. It could be humor, like people think it's humor. And it allows people to be derogatory to other people just because they're different. And it's not something that you can tolerate. Yeah. And so, Blaine, when you think about this, I mean, this is something I think a lot of communities are being educated on, that we all have to stand up for each other. Absolutely. And it does not happen as often as it should, whether it's colorism, racism. You know, we have colorism in our own community. We have racism in the larger community. We have anti-Semitism in the larger community. And so we need to be able to stand up regardless of our ethnicity or regardless of our race. We need to see uh, people as valuable human beings. Yeah. And so when we talk about this walk, how does it bring people together to do all those things, to to educate folks and give you actual tools on how to reduce the hate around us. Well, people should look at it more of a, a festival of inclusion mm-hmm. uh, and respect. Um, the walk itself is a three-kilometer stroll around the Navy Yard, so sh- and no one should feel that they have to practice or, uh, or you know, train for this walk. And it, so a big part of this walk is our diversity expo. Uh, there'll be over 30 um, nonprofit organizations represented which are from a myriad of religious points of view, the LGBTQ community, and really just a matter of those organizations being there so that everyone can go from table to table and place to place and learn about different people's organizations and different uh, people's views on things and feel empowered to embrace the diversity of, of Philadelphia. Yeah. And I know the word is getting out now. People can register and become a part of this. We need to get this out right now. It's the walkagainsthate.org, and you can put in the code word Flashpoint. And the registration fee goes from $25 to $10. So if you're listening right now, please join the Walk Against Hate. And walking is very good for your heart. So come on out, (laughs) and we'll make sure that there are voter registration tables there so that people can stop talking and vote. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, And, I mean, it's also solidarity. It is very much so solidarity. Uh, you feel, you know, it, it, when you're at the walk and you're and you're looking at the different groups that are represented and the different people that have come out to walk yeah. um, and to be part of this this uh, event, you feel really good about Philadelphia and you really feel good about the community at large. Wonderful. Walkagainsthate.org. 
And uh, type in Flashpoint, get a That's discount. Right. And get I discount. also want to congratulate the ADL because I've had you guys on Flashpoint show a couple of times to talk about some of the bystander uh, intervention mm-hmm. um, that you guys have been doing and also some of the training that you've been doing to teach people how to intervene when hateful things are happening. Because I think a lot of a lot of the issue is most people are not as bold and, 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 and convicted as a blame. And they are they are very shy. But at the same time, there are more subtle ways that I think you can speak out and stop the things that are happening around you. And uh, and people get nervous about they don't know how to speak out. So if you can give a quick piece of advice, how do you if you're a shy person, don't like to be confrontational, how do you speak out against it? I think that all you, all you need to do is to walk over to the person that is being hurtful and you know tap them on the shoulder, pull them aside and just say, you know, what you're doing here, whether it's whether it's a physical act or it's just verbal, um, that it's not right. And you better you should really think about the way you're talking to other people because they deserve the same respect yes. that you want to garner yourself. Yes. And if people just treat people with respect, then this world will be a better place. Yeah. And that's and that and, and no matter how shy you are, you can do that. And let me just say one more. It's May nineteenth at nine o'clock. So be there bright and early. You'll be there from 9 o'clock till noon or 1230. You'll have a wonderful beginning of the day at the Navy Yard, and then you'll have the rest of your Sunday afternoon to enjoy with your family and friends. Wonderful. Check out walkagainsthate.org. Type in Flashpoint for that discount. And I want to say thank you to Alan Gubernick, and thank you to Blaine Sider for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As ancient Greek philosopher and mathematician Plato once said, one of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is that you end up being governed by your inferiors. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.